Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the Novartis FCPA and False Claims Act settlement. Mike Bolkoff looks at the False Claims Settlement. Jay Rosen looks at the cost of recidivism as Novartis is now a two-time loser under the FCPA. Jonathan Marks considers accounting fraud in China and how that's tied into the FCPA. Matt Kelly says that the Novartis FCPA enforcement action points out the need for data analytics and compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong advises on what he would tell a UK pharmaceutical company uh, in relation to the FCPA portion of the Novartis settlement. We have shouts, outs, and rants at the end. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Tom Fox back again for another episode of Everything Compliance. We have the full quintet this week. Jonathan Armstrong, Jay Rosen, Jonathan Marks, Michael Volkoff, and Matt Kelly. We are going to take a deep dive into the Novartis Imbroglio. We are going to uh, start with uh, Mr. Rosen. So, Jay, what do you see in this matter? Thanks, Tom. Uh, so just to recap the, the numbers and what happened, uh, pharmaceutical giant Novartis AG and two subsidiaries agreed on Thursday, June 25th to pay the DOJ and the SEC $346.7 million in penalties and disgorgement. And this resolved FCPA offenses in Greece, Vietnam, and South Korea. Uh, in the administrative order, uh, the SEC charged Novartis with violating uh, at books and records and internal control provisions. The Swiss pharma uh, giant agreed to disgorge $92.3 million plus prejudgment interest of $20.5 million. Novartis made over $92.3 million in profits. So this is going to uh, set me off to launch. I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, Novartis joining a very ignominious group. So let me read some companies' names to you. Baker Hughes, 2001 and 2007. Eibel Group, Vetco Gray, 2007 and 2008. Lucent Alcatel, 2007 and 2010. Old Timer General Electric, 1992 and 2010. Tyco, 2016 and 2012. Orthofix, 2012 and 2017. Same year range for Biomet. Tom's favorite Halliburton, 2009 and 2017. Stryker, 2013 and 2018. Technip, 2010, 2019. And Novartis, 2016 and 2020. 16 companies. What do they have in common? They're all FCPA recidivists, two-time losers, Seven of these companies have received this second strike since 2017. 
So how does it continue to happen? I'm sure they hired the best attorneys, engaged the most dedicated and brightest forensic investigators to help them uncover and discover where they went wrong. They wrote the best ethics and compliance program and trained their global workforce to the ends of the earth that this would never happen again. But unfortunately for these 16, it did. So where did we go wrong? Did the government go too easy on the first time recidivist? Did they allow too much credit from the bottom of the penalty range? Did the DPA or NPA that was agreed to lack the necessary teeth to allow the agreement to be a credible deterrent for future FCPA wrongdoing? Nope. Standard issue agreement. All the usual suspects were called in. And like any group of professionals, they got on board. They rolled up their sleeves. They did their job and left with the confidence of knowing that these companies would shake off their past misdeeds and move ahead to a brighter future. But these 16 didn't. They did not take heed of their past missteps as they continued on their illegal ways. They may have fired some of the bad apples, brought in some very talented compliance officers, maybe even from top AMLA 100 firms, and they may have even sourced some all-stars from the DOJ or the SEC, but they still ended up making sausage. So if you bring in the best that money can buy and you once again find yourself a repeat offender, what went wrong? They say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But there's one key concept I have not yet mentioned yet, culture. Everything enumerated to this point involved outside changes being brought to bear on a corrupt and broken infrastructure. But none of these changes seem to have made one iota of a difference on how the company behaves moving forward. These companies seem doomed to repeat the mistakes of their past as their leaders have allowed a cultural cancer to remain within the organization and continue to spread the recidivist virus among the workforce. This is not only an FCPA phenomenon. Let me throw some other names at you. Uber, Harvey Weinstein, Wells Fargo, Bill Cosby, Boeing, Jeffrey Epstein. Shall I continue? When Tom asked me to look at the cost of recidivism, I thought I was going to put together a chart Look at the additional monies owed under the most recent settlements, give these companies the proverbial slap on their greedy hands, and allow them to move forward on their path, trying to be, what, what's a third time loser called? Is that a trividiist? This is not only about reputational risk, as these broken companies seem to have gone way past the exit on the freeway years ago. From my perspective, this seems to be a cultural malaise that is allowed to hang around and fester which leads to repeat offenses. So now we know what it is. We've given it a name, we've done the heavy lifting, we've spent the shareholders' money to make the changes. Then why do we continually go to the precipice but not take the final leap of faith? We can no longer allow the excuse of a few bad apples. We need to retire that one along with the dog ate my homework. So what is the cost of recidivism? It is the definition of insanity. Let's get a new game plan. Let's help companies regain their ethical standing. But most importantly, let's train the cleansing light of sunshine where it is most needed on a cancerous culture that allows companies to stumble, get back up, and unfortunately fall back down again. So, Jay, this case had uh, the unique aspect of one, or rather the first enforcement action was in China. 
and the part of this enforcement action was in China. Any uh, ideas how they could have not only missed the additional corruption violations in China, but literally across uh, Asia and into Greece? Uh, I just, it, it seems to defy logic that if you have a scheme that happens once in one geography and it gets repeated again, it, it's got to be willful blindness because blindness, because I don't know how you miss something as clear as daylight. Mr. Marks, uh, a part of this FCPA enforcement action involved uh, accounting fraud in China. Um, it was interesting that we rarely see this type of accounting fraud uh, co-joined to an FCPA enforcement action. From your uh, forensic audit perspective, what did you see? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, I think there was a I, I can't remember where the statement was, but I think it was poor internal control um, uh, emanates fertile soil for malfeasance. I think that was one of the quotes somewhere. And I think what we need to really start to realize is that internal controls and accounting are really symbiotic. And, you know, when you start to look at Alcon and the agreements, the equipment financing arrangements that they had, I think they call them EFAs um, and the ag aggressive sales tactics. I think Jay mentioned culture. But, um, you know, those types of things are, are, are kind of interesting to me from an accounting perspective. You know, revenue recognition is certainly something um, that if you're an accountant today and you study all the fraud, um, all the frauds that have happened over the years, the financial statement frauds, it's certainly one of the top things that certainly shines through. So from a risk perspective, I'm kind of interested to see, um, which we I don't think we have sort of insight in. But I, I, I'd be really interested to see what their fraud risk assessment looked like. Um, I'd also be interested to see what the auditors um, classified as fraud risk as well and how they designed their procedures. The other thing I would really love to see is the pre-acquisition due diligence of Alcon and sort of the post-acquisition integration plan there. You know, the other the one thing that I think, um, you know, the focus on accounting is great, but you know, there's an old adage in investigations, follow the money. What I keep seeing in these in some of these cases, and it's kind of interesting is, and I think we need to sort of shift a little bit here is, yes, follow the money. That's really important, but also follow the people. Um, I keep talking about, and I've said this for years, bad apple, bad bunch, bad crop. Um, you know, did they really assess culture properly? Were there bad apples there? You know, did they put people in positions that you know, allow these particular finance leases to, to manifest themselves. Um, and then you kind of move through the accounting and, you know, the accounting is, the accounting is sort of interesting to me, but, you know, again, I think it's sort of all the things that surround that, that are part of the whole ecosystem there. Um, you know, on-site, one of the things I read was, you know, you know, an on-site check was completed in the summer of, of 2016 and confirmed that, I think close to 900 pieces of equipment have been placed pursuant to almost 500 contracts. And they had control deficiencies, including, you know, lack of formal signatures. Some pieces of equipment were not located and some equipment was obtained through through forgery. Um, so, again, the accounting is interesting to me, but the controls, um, the document, the document controls um, the internal controls, all the things that are around that, I think created a real target-rich environment 
that allowed this accounting to happen. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not something that we haven't seen before, but to this magnitude and, you know, considering them touting themselves as having uh, a pretty solid program, I- I'm really surprised. Jonathan, you talk uh, often about the fraud Pentagon. Uh, does the fraud Pentagon have any application to what you saw in the accounting fraud in China? Well, I think it's I think it's more than the fraud Pentagon. And I'll give you know, Matt, Matt Kelly did a presentation for us years ago. Um, and, I, you know, we talked one of the things we talked about was, you know, are, you know, are all sides of the fraud triangle will back up for a second. Really, you know, is it an equilateral uh, type of uh, uh, of a play? You know, or are some sides more um, more elongated? For example, in Wells Fargo, you know, obviously the pressure was 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 certainly there. When you when you look at the the human elements of certain things here, again, looking at the people aspect of this, or the human element of it, um, when we look and gravitate from the from the triangle to the Pentagon, and we add the two components, which are competence and arrogance. Competence being the ability to, you know, for people to override internal controls and able to socially control the situation and sell it to others. I think that does come into play here a little bit. Um, I haven't analyzed this to any great extent and have not done the investigation, so I really can't comment. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the arrogance here is something that's really interesting, too. Um, and that piece where, you know, the, the u- that hubris comes in and that internal controls simply don't apply to those, those individuals that are in certain key positions, um, as well as um, the, um, the thought that, you know, uh, that they could override the controls and not get caught, or that people would sort of turn, the, turn, a, you know, turn a different direction. So I do think that when looking at the fraud Pentagon, that comes into play, but I, I equally think it's important to look at the other side of this, and that's the, you know, the triangle of fraud action, which is the act the concealment, or how did they hide it, Mike Volkoff, and how did they convert these these bad behaviors into into gains for themselves and the organization? So, yeah, it, it does come into play. Um, I do think that if you look at all sides of this, you know, from a triangle perspective, there was certainly, um, I think there's they're not equal, and I think there was there's really there was really an opportunity here for someone who was looking at this from a fraud perspective or from a risk perspective. To, to key in on those things and design procedures, you know, there's, I don't think there's, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, where's internal audit in this process? Um, I don't see any mention of internal audit in here. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, I, I don't know where internal audit was. You know, uh, if you're going to look at, you know, if you're going to look at sort of the other things that they did from a monitoring perspective at a management level, where were they, where was the board, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we learned from the the Caremark case, right, that the board has not only not only needs to have an understanding of what's going on from compliance, but really needs to kind of reach over and figure out, you know, is the compliance program really effective? Do we have adequate resources? Things of that nature. I, I just don't know about this. I think that there's a lot of writing about this now. I'm curious to see what winds up coming out um, related to Novartis in the next months and probably years. Matt Kelly, uh, you had the uh, the great foresight to to be the first commentator to to write about this ca- case and really break this story, and you were also the first to write about the data analytics co- uh, component and how you saw that issue that uh, has become more of the forefront now. 
What uh, struck you about the data analytics part or the lessons learned around data analytics from the Novartis case? Well, yeah, I did. Although before I get into the data analytics, I just want to pick up on one point that Jonathan Marks brought up where he was talking about uh, management override of internal control. Uh, That is always a a very real threat for these sorts of frauds and misconduct that we see. And it drives home the point yet again that I think we should all remember. Number one, management override of internal control is a perfectly fine thing unto itself, but it must always happen in the, the full light of day where it is properly documented and the manager overrides it where everybody can see what's going on and say, all right, even if I disagree with that, he or she is the manager, they get to do it, but I've seen it. And when you have management override that is not documented or not fully exposed and happening in secret, that's when you get this sort of nonsense that goes on. Um, That said, uh, about the data analytics, what I had done when this uh, story broke, I took a very close look specifically at what Novartis had been doing in Greece, uh, where the Greek executives there did something that really is not that innovative for anti for bribery schemes, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, where they showered a lot of travel expenses on Greek doctors and hospital executives, healthcare executives, uh, to send them to big, fancy pharmaceutical industry conferences all over the world. And that has been going on for years. And we should stress that actually simply sending a doctor that maybe you are working with on a research project, and then you want to send that doctor so she or he can present their findings at a conference, like that is not illegal per se. It is not even illegal if that medical professional comes from a country like Greece where they are government executives or government employees and therefore they're foreign officials and we have all the FCPA risks. Like you can do that. Um, it's not necessarily wise, but that is what Greece, what Novartis executives in Greece were doing. And, you know, it you could say that, yes, this government healthcare employee is important enough and we are working with enough of a interesting health project that we want to share it with the world. So we're going to fly them from Athens to Rome or Texas or wherever it might be in the world. And it is legitimate business expense uh, that we're going to be able to do. It's a bona fide uh, business transaction and it's worth it. Here's all of our documentation. That's fine then. You haven't violated the FCPA. But Of course, in Novartis' case, that is not what actually happened. Uh, They very clearly, these executives, saw these uh, investments, that was the exact word they used in their emails, uh, these investments in medical professionals. uh, We were going to shower them with travel expenses, uh, whisk them all over the world. I think the average cost was six or eight thousand dollars per executive. No, wait, six thousand dollars per doctor sent for various conferences that they were flying these people around to. Um, you know, they saw that as a investment in the doctors, and then the doctors would prescribe more of their eye treatment medication, which is Lucentis. Um, and my take on this was, think about what really happened here. Um, what did Novartis executives know? Well, they all knew 
which doctors in Greece were prescribing Lucentis the most. And every pharmaceutical company would be able to tell you which doctors are buying the most of our medicine. If you don't know which doctors are buying your medicines, say if you are selling opioids, you are in deep trouble with federal regulators. You know, you always know that and pharmaceuticals have always known that for years. Um, who is buying the most of our product and for what reason? So the marketing teams, the product sales teams would know who's buying the most of our drugs. The marketing teams would know who are we spending this money on to whisk them to various conferences? And for the compliance officer, then, in those two piles of data, that's your data analytics to be able to look at those two things and see, could I cross-reference this? And could I see whether, over the course of four or five years, the company has been spending more and more money on this particular doctor to travel around the world, and then he or she is prescribing more and more of our product. And if there's a correlation there, now you can see, well, why is that? And let's maybe, is there a risk there that we should investigate? Which is exactly what Novartis should have done. Um, that was the subject of my blog post. And I, uh, you know, I got a little bit of a pushback from some compliance officers uh, when I posted that saying, Data analytics would not necessarily have told you about this misconduct. It wouldn't have uncovered the misconduct. The, the really damning stuff was in the emails and in the notes and the minutes of sales team meetings where they specifically laid out ROI calculations for various doctors. And if the doctors aren't prescribing more, please tell them we're going to turn off the, the travel kitty and you won't be able to go anywhere. Like the smoking gun was definitely in the emails. And a couple of people said you need access to those to really be able to root out the misconduct. That's true. My point is more that data analytics helps you understand where you should go looking next for more specific sorts of uh, questions and risks that, you know, seems like something weird is here. Here's an unusual correlation that's worth looking into. And then, you know, as I was writing it, it really did occur to me that this need for data analytics this is exactly what the Justice Department just told us is important in its evaluation guidance that it published at the beginning of June about effective compliance programs. What was the single thing that they added that really stood out more than anything else from prior guidance about effective compliance programs? Compliance officers access to data. They need access to the data so they can do better risk assessments. That is exactly what Novartis should have tried to do here. Now, all this misconduct happened at the beginning of the 2010s in the first half. It's Novartis. I'm going to assume they had some pretty sophisticated data analytics, but that may not have been true for every company in the world in the early 2010s. It is true for every company now. If you can't figure out these sort of data analytics, then you really shouldn't be in business because your IT can definitely do it. The question is more, does the compliance officer have access to that data? Is the company senior executives and the business leaders, are they giving the compliance function access to that data? And then you can crunch the numbers to say, all right, here are our strange correlations. Now let's look deeper at those. Oh, bang, here in the emails and in the meeting minutes, now I see I've got a big problem. That stood out to me as a big lesson for others about how could you put the Novartis settlement to good use. It's very specific to Greece. I haven't even looked at all the other stuff because I don't have four weeks of time and it would take at least that to fully understand everything Novartis did. But uh, that's what stood out to my mind. 
Jonathan Armstrong, uh, did uh, you have a question for Matt? Yeah, in in the UK, uh, sometimes circumstances like that are called Nelsonian ignorance. It's named after Nor- Lord <laughs> Nelson, who didn't see the ships because he put his telescope up to his blind eye. And it sounds a little bit like that here, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, isn't it know or ought to have known is, is the test? If you haven't got the metrics, a lot of executives think, don't they? I, I, I won't. You hear words like Pandora's box. I won't sweat the metrics because I'm scared of what I'm going to find. So there's an old maxim, isn't there? Many of us were taught at law school, ignorance is no defense. And and isn't that the case here, that individuals often try and turn a blind eye? They know what's going on, really. There's a great story about Siemens. I spoke to somebody who was at the heart of the Siemens thing. And they said the question they were asked was, did you see any cash coming out of the safes? The answer they honestly gave was no, because there was a code that if you were going to go into the safe, you stomped your feet. And everybody knew that was the signal to look the other way. So you could competently answer to an investigator, did you see the safe being opened? No, I didn't. But if the investigator had asked the next question, did you know that the safe was being opened, people removing cash, from what I hear, a lot of people would have had to give a different answer. You have to wonder about those kind of points that you raised, Jonathan, because if another example of what happened in Greece was they actually had flagged certain doctors as key opinion leaders, KOLs, uh, yeah. which, again, is not an unusual thing in pharma. You know, there are doctors out there who are influential. But think of this from an anti-bribery FCPA perspective. You have influential doctors who are on the government payroll. They are clearly government employees of a foreign government, and you're selling to them right away. You know that person is a high risk. Um, So therefore, we should look more closely at what they are doing. And the piles of data about what Novartis was transacting with these doctors, it was out there. It was just more a, I I don't want to necessarily hang who turned the blind eye on the Novartis compliance officer specifically. I don't know who turned the blind eye, but all of it was laying out there for you. You just had to line up the data in the right way and it would all line up and tell you, you got a problem over here, go look, and then you'd see exactly what. Jonathan Marks, when the 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance programs came out in June, you had perhaps the most prescient comment I've heard, which is that the Department of Justice has finally embraced business intelligence for corporate compliance programs. How does that tie into uh, sort of Matt's data analytics approach? I think data analytics is a piece of it. I also think understanding the business is critical. I think the risk assessment process is critical. Um, I think it's it's time now when you look at a compliance program, you may have all the parts there, you know, all the individual components there, but tying them all together and looking at all those component parts, I think, is really critical from a business intelligence perspective. And I really think that's what they're driving at. Um, some people might think I'm crazy, but I think that's what we're, we're trying to where we're trying to move from. Making decisions uh, based on imperfect data is sometimes necessary. But when you have all these things in front of you, like, for example, data analytics, I don't disagree with Matt that all the data was probably there, but, you know, it's access to that data and it's access to the right data. Like, you'd be curious to find out if somebody actually requested to look at certain things and they were blocked off or directed, you know, said, oh, that's not really important and moved away. Um, you know, uh, that, that, that's all part of kind of the concealment process or, or hiding the bad behavior. 
So, you know, I, I really do think that if you're going to start to consider yourself to be an organization that has a robust corporate compliance program, you know, you have to really take a step back and say, are all the pieces of my compliance program, all the hallmarks that are there, are, are they all integrated? Do we have the best intelligence that we could possibly get in order to make good and informed decisions? So Mike Volkoff, uh, did you have a comment for Jonathan Marks? Uh, I certainly did, Jonathan. Um, one thing I noticed in the EFA uh, analysis in China was that there were internal uh, sort of assessments and then remediation plans that were put out by the auditors the mm -hmm. internal. And the interesting thing to me was, I mean, they said right in the in the, the government's order or settlement papers was they couldn't get it done in the statement of facts. In other words, you had remediation plans twice developed for uh, fixing the EFA accounting problems. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's like the, uh, the people who did the audit weren't even listened to. And that to me is, so imagine, let's say that my client can afford to bring in Baker Tilly, Jonathan Marks comes in, uh, finds all these issues, you turn over the report, and the client says, thank you very much, and goodbye, and you doesn't know and doesn't do anything. I mean, what was going on there? That's crazy to me. Well, Mike, I think that's a great point, and that's why I'm curious as to why internal audit wasn't really called out more. Um, there, there are, and I have seen this personally and been involved with it from an investigatory perspective, but also from a governance perspective. I know you don't like the word governance, but I'll bring it up here. Yeah. There, are, yeah. there are there are many, many, many times where internal audit will come out and do um, you know do their work and list remediation uh, remediation steps. Hopefully, you know those steps are taken and there's a plan in place to remediate those gaps. A lot of times, what happens and the the, the huge failure here is the follow up, and it's not. It's not like it, it's not picking up the phone and saying, hey, did you implement those remediation steps or getting a piece of paper back that had a remediation plan where everything's ticked off. It's going back out and looking at and testing for the effectiveness of that remediation. I, I would love to know if that was actually done. And my best guess here is it probably wasn't. And I think that's right. why, you know, every, you know, and, and again, you know, maybe people didn't want the remediation to be put in, which should have been a giant red flag anyway, at least for, you know, from an audit perspective and from a risk perspective, when people don't want to re remediate gaps. To me, that's a red flag. It's a huge red flag. Should have been brought to the attention of the audit committee. And, um, you know, again, you know, where are they mentioned? Right. And I, I and Jonathan, I, I think that's really an important point, because to me, it creates evidence of a lack of culture if you go halfway and then don't remediate. I've known audit committees that keep track of every step of remediation and they have deadlines. And if they don't, you don't meet that deadline, all of a sudden the board is contacting you. I mean, come on, that's crazy. And here we had that, that problem. But let me, let me go on to another point here. And I guess you guys are being pretty charitable. I wanna join on the Jay Rosen front. Because really, I think, take a step back from what we had here. And I'm going to talk about the False Claims Act settlement in a minute for Novartis. You guys are being charitable in terms of data analytics or mission, you know, things that were missed. This is not a case of things that were missed. This is a case where 
add Novartis to the pantheon of Siemens, General Motors, Wells Fargo, and put them in the Misconduct Hall of Fame. Because this was a corporate culture from the top on down that didn't give a damn. At the same time that we're having bribery overseas, and I'm going to go through the domestic bribery scheme that resulted ultimately in Novartis paying $729 million here within two weeks of the uh, FCPA settlement, we have a defective culture. And we have a place that needs to be ripped apart. The only thing that I know of is that the CEO and the general counsel left, which Tom reminded me of. But this company needs to be re redone. And the problem is, I don't see, uh, I'm very curious as to why there's not a compliance monitor. We have only a corporate integrity agreement uh, on the AKS, the Anti-Kickback False Claims Act side. But this is a company that needs to be ripped apart and started over. But keep in mind that uh, I, I, got you, I know you all know that Donna Bohm, uh, she had called Novartis, you know, the new leader in compliance because about a year ago, they instituted a new plan for senior management where senior managers were not, um, were not eligible for bonuses unless they uh, satisfied ethics and compliance requirements. No bonus whatsoever. Uh, and she thought that that, was, that established them as a leader in compliance. Well, little did she know that two years later, we'd be sitting here looking at this. And maybe it took two years to resolve all those, uh, all those cases. So let's, uh, I just want to take a minute just to, so, so we had a, a foreign bribery settlement and we basically had a domestic bribery settlement. So, uh, and we have top management involved in the United States in directing it and knowing about it. So that to me indicates we're, we're talking about a criminal organization. We're not talking about a business. Uh, compliance to the extent they operated were ignored. Uh, auditors, like Jonathan said, to the extent they operated were ignored, okay? So really the challenge now is, can they actually ever bring about a culture of compliance? Um, and I'm, I'm really skeptical. And, you know, the, the government sort of pointed to enhancements and compliance, but time will tell uh, in, my, in my view. But let's talk about first the, the, the Anti-Kickback and False Claims Act. Uh, the, there were two matters that were settled. Uh, one was for $591 million, uh, where they paid $591 million, agreed to forfeit $38 million to resolve anti-kickback and false claims act charges, and they agreed to pay $48 million to settle state Medicaid claims. And this was done. This was all in a scheme which was pervasive for a corrupt speaker program. Uh, and a speaker program is usually a way where they pay doctors to speak at events. They hold social occasions around it, but this was just basically as the scheme was known to and, and carried out with the full support and direction of top management at Novartis's U.S. headquarters. I don't know if those people uh, are still there, uh, but they certainly shouldn't be. Um, so what happened is Novartis hosted tens of thousands of speaker programs and related events as so-called educational events, 
when in fact they were just paying bribes to the physicians. They paid honoraria for alleged lectures regarding a Novartis medication, but in fact, many of the programs were social events like at restaurants, wineries, golf clubs, other sports venues, but with little or no discussion about Novartis drugs. DOJ even, of course, they had to note this, that Novartis held 75 events at Hooters. Of course, DOJ worked that in, of course. Some of the events never even took place, and the physician was just paid a fee, basically to induce the physician to increase prescriptions of the Novartis drugs. And to attempt to provide cover for the scheme, they they developed these slides uh, of quote-unquote educational material which they would show at each meeting. But by the way, they would, you know, they would have the same doctors uh, appear at these, you know, invited to these events where they get paid. And then they would show the same five slides over and over to the doctors. Uh, so they were trying to disguise the real purpose of the event uh, as well. And like I mentioned, they get, they, uh, then there was another scheme that they settled at the same time. There's been a big sort of, uh, investigation and enforcement actions against a lot of drug companies in the use of uh, foundations. They set up foundations that are used to pay co-payments of Medicare patients. So in other words, for an expensive drug, uh, they may uh, help people who can't afford it. Uh, let's say it's $1,000, the co-payment, the foundation will pay it for them. Well, what the drug companies were actually doing, and, and Novartis is one of many that's been prosecuted in this area, is they set up these foundations, but they gave the money to the foundation uh, on the assumption that uh, it would be used to pay the co-payments for their drugs, only their drugs, not for a class of drugs and not for a group of drugs. So uh, Novartis had to pay $51 million to settle uh, those charges for the illegal use of three foundations that were used to pay the co-payments for Medicare patients. So anyway, uh, I, I, I just am, to be honest with you, disgusted by uh, this. I do think that there should have been a corporate monitor of some sort. Uh, you know, the corporate integrity agreements are pretty good with HHS, you know, and they require uh, each board member and senior manager to sign an annual certification of compliance. But uh, this company needed to have a monitor. And frankly, um, I would also like to see criminal prosecutions of individuals. Uh, and I haven't seen that yet. Uh, but it seems to me like uh, Novartis can come in, pay a lot of money, and keep going. But this was pervasive. Everybody knew about it, and the culture, I think. Uh, I would like to add to Jay's list, uh, Novartis, you know, and I think Jay's points about culture in the beginning uh, says it all. I mean, we're just looking at damage otherwise. Matt Kelly, do you have a, a question or comment for Mike Volkoff? Well, uh, two, really. And, you know, Mike, you, you hit on one of the questions I had wanted to ask was uh, if the whole point of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy is to induce cooperation from the company as we pursue individual wrongdoers. So, Mike, as you said, where are the individual indictments? I, we haven't seen I any agree. yet. I, I would be curious to see, is, is one going to be forthcoming? Um, 
But the other thing that I keep wondering about now is we see something like this. Like, Are we really just admitting that Novartis is a too-big-to-fail company? Um, if we indicted them or criminally convicted them, they can't do business with the Fed or with the, the Feds, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. So they provide valuable drugs. Uh, they are working on a COVID vaccine. Um, we need Novartis around. Uh, even if you did want to dismantle them, dismantle them how? You know, which other pharmas would buy up which pieces of Novartis? Um, well, you never mind the fact that Novartis is actually not a U.S. company. It's headquartered in Switzerland. Uh, but you know, how are we supposed to treat these companies if they really functionally are too big to fail? And then, I, okay, even if it is too big to fail, so this is the standard of keeping them alive. Is you just you pay a fine, but yeah, there's no monitor. Um, there's uh, just, there's not enough here for me to say, okay, they're too big to fail, but we're still really going to take them to the woodshed anyways. This is not enough of the woodshed to me, given what we've seen. Yeah, you know, uh, you make a good point, in and I used, I, I'm not literally, I don't want to literally tear them apart, but they need to be, there needs to be an overhaul here from, from the board on down. I get that they're a Swiss company. But you're right about the exclusionary uh, impact. Is that if they were criminally convicted, they will uh, they would be excluded from participating in Medicare and Medicaid, and we can't have that uh, because it wouldn't be uh, you know there are a lot of people that need their drugs in that sense. But at a minimum, I mean, look, Siemens. Look at the cases where we do have corporate monitors, and here we have an ongoing global bribery scheme, not just foreign, but a bribery scheme that, and that's run by top management in the U.S., and uh, God knows what, what was going on in Switzerland. Also, I think uh, uh, Tom reminded me that, they were, that this was the company that paid Michael Cohen uh, a certain amount, what was it, $250,000 or something, you know, and uh, in terms of uh, trying to get his influence. Well, I'm not saying that that's enough to indict them, but, you know, where are the people from Greece? I mean, you went through the Greece program. Somebody had to be responsible for that and could have been indicted. Um, you know, I just, I will say this. They had really good lawyers. I mean, you had two former chiefs of the FCPA unit representing Alcon and uh, representing Alcon and um, and Novartis. So they had great lawyers, but it just seems to me kind of crazy. And and uh, it's it, to me, it's a discouraging resolution uh, by DOJ uh, in this situation. I mean, I hope the False Claims Act people were talking to the FCPA unit. So Jonathan Armstrong from uh, sitting across the pond in the United Kingdom, how would you advise UK pharma clients? based upon either the FCPA resolution or what Mike Volkov discussed in the False Claims Act resolution? I think the first thing to say, Tom, is this is depressingly familiar, isn't it, with pharmaceutical businesses. And I can remember when I started doing this stuff about 20 years ago, it was known that symposia like this, trips away, were often a cover for something Bad. It must have been, I think, because I'm incredibly old, the mid-90s, I think I was in a lat in 
Israel and the beach was cleared and we were told the beach had been hired and it was a pharma company entertaining their French doctors and it was like the last days of Rome, you know, champagne fountains on the beach, etc., etc. And so we've known about that this stuff for more than 20 years. You know, 10 years ago, Ken Clark, when he was the Justice Secretary, launched the uh, UK Bribery Act. And he said, I can't remember his exact words, but something like hospitality is often used as a cover for bad behavior. Ken Clark, by the way, knew that because he'd been on a fact-finding mission to the Singapore Grand Prix to investigate just how invidious hospitality could be. And uh, he, he declared that. I'm not, I'm not casting any, any stones unduly there. But we've known of this for a, you know 20 years now. And, and it's the classic sucker up to bribery, isn't it? It starts with drug reps bringing pens in, and then it uh, develops into symposia that don't really exist. And there's four doctors having a uh, a meal and a, and a night's accommodation in Georges Sank in Paris. And maybe they do talk a bit of shop over dinner, and maybe they don't as they're tucking into their three-star uh, Michelin uh, uh, dinner for sharing of thoughts. And I've seen it with with my own eyes. You know, we've done audits of businesses. W one of my favorites is uh, a um, a Salesforce type database where they've said, you know, we always take this particular doctor away and uh, we always uh, uh, have the tickets made out to him and his wife and the room is booked for him and his wife and you're to ring a week earlier, uh, the, the, you know, a week before the trip and say, unfortunately, Mrs. X can't make it. At the last minute, thankfully, his assistants managed to step in and, uh, and it's too short notice. We know to change the room allocation and they'll just make the best of it and, uh, and, and share a room. And, and, and effectively, A, it's a dumb thing to pay for uh, a, a doctor to have uh, a week away in a hot country with someone who isn't his wife. B, it's a doubly dumb thing to record it in Salesforce to remind everybody in the organization to switch the air tickets, et cetera, et cetera. This stuff has been going on for ages. I'm sure that in the days of the Roman Empire, we'll find out that there were bribes for particular brands of olive oil or whatever to, to clinicians. And, and it's the fact that it's expected. I can remember at a social event, being harangued by a nurse who had married a doctor in their practice because, quote, the likes of me meant that she had to pay for her own weekends away because previously all of the weekends away with her and her husband had been met by drugs companies. So we know that this problem has existed for many years. And just as we should be aware of Greeks bearing gifts, we should be aware of people who bear gifts to Greeks as well. And 
One of the confusing things for some multinational corporations is, I have to say, the FCPA, because sometimes as compliance professionals, wrongly, we spend so much time telling people who's a public official and who isn't, that sometimes people on the ground say, well, then it's okay to pay somebody who looks like they're in the private sector because you, HQ, wouldn't spend so much time telling me who's a public official if you didn't mean me to pay somebody who wasn't a public official. So part of the problem is with compliance professionals. Part of the problem is with those companies that have detailed guidance on uh, FCPA at the expense of a simple rule that says it is wrong to bribe people. Uh, however you describe it, if you call it an educational trip to the Georges Sank, if you call it a symposium at the Georges Sank, if it involves lobsters and two Michelin star cuisine, it's probably a bribe. So what do you do about it? Well, obviously, you've got to have proper gifts and hospitality records. Obviously, it's a gift if you're inviting the spouse. It's, it could be hospitality if it's a legitimate trip. I agree to an extent that it could be a legitimate trip. In my view, that is pretty rare these days. Oftentimes, if it involves, as I say, lobsters, golf, hooters, then, then, uh, then your then your warning bells have to be sounding. So you need proper uh, gifts and hospitality records. You need to look at cumulative totals. You know, taking somebody to a Premier League game when they were still available eight times a year. The, the the amount there is eight times the ticket price, not the ticket price if you're doing that. We've had cases on that in the UK. But you need to look at cumulative totals, not one-offs. You need to look at people deliberately trying to fly under the radar. So if your, to- if your maximum trip value without, uh, w- without passing it up the line is uh, – then you need to have a look at the 299, 298, 297 dollar claims from time to time because that's going to suggest somebody's trying to fiddle the system. You need to look, I think, at um, at, uh, at those limits. You need to look at the reader in the press test. You need to drum that in to all of the people in the organization. Would you be comfortable defending this if you read it in the newspapers? If you were the one fronting the press conference and having to explain this, could you put your hand on your heart and say it's okay? And we need and we need people not, uh, this isn't meant to be a political point, we need people with spine to look at that press test, not, you know, a, a, a presidential press spokesman. Um We need, as I said, clear policies. We need to do due diligence on acquisition. Jonathan Marks made a really good point there. We can't just turn a blind eye to what we're buying because we're buying market share. If we're buying a problem, we need to know we're buying a problem. We need to deal with it. KOL problems, uh, as we've already discussed, are often trouble. I've seen many of them where they've outsourced the KOL campaign to 
not a geographical point or a racist point, but to offshore operations. And you've got to look at how the people who are running your KOL program are remunerated if you've outsourced it. Are they getting paid by the number of people they can get to travel to these events? And how are they explaining it? Because if you're paying per head to get somebody to a symposium in a hot country. Do you know what? The person who's getting $20 a day in that call center is going to sell it as a holiday and not as a symposium. And that's going to cause you trouble further down the line. You've got to train people better. And too often, we're just training the salespeople and we're training them that they can't um, give certain things. They can't give cash. They can't sponsor soccer teams. Um, We have to be more granular than that. And we have to say to them, you can't give anything of value unless you can justify it, unless it's objectively justifiable. And again, put that press test back. But then more importantly at all, it seems to me, is you've got to get people's hearts and minds. This is an industry that has got problems. There's expectations from those receiving that they will always receive free holidays for them and their spouses and their girlfriends and their mistresses forevermore. The industry as a whole has got to reverse that trend and shine a light on this bad behavior and sort it out. So for those who may have uh, just joined us, that was not Jonathan uh, Armstrong's rant that will be following later. <laughs> but that is going to move us to rants and or shout outs. And we're going to go in the same order. So Jay Rosen, do you have a rant and or shout out for us today? Oh, yeah. I've got some good news uh, coming to us. A directive by the Trump administration that would strip international college students of their U.S. visas if their coursework was done entirely online. This has prompted people to have widespread confusion. Uh, To my friend Stephen Miller and to the president of the United States, stop using our kids as human pinatas. This map of the U.S. is red with embers, as the administration calls it, and you are not using my daughters to make a political statement that this country should be opened up. So just stop it. I am taking care of my kids first, and they are not going to school if it's not safe. So, Jonathan Marks. Uh, I kind of want to give a shout out to the folks that coined the phrase document, document, document. Um, You know, I I, I don't know whether um, people really listen to that or it just kind of goes right through them. But I will tell you that more and more and more, in the fraud space where I'm seeing people make judgment calls or, uh, you know, on a content, not on a contemporaneous basis, but, um, those judgments and that logic has not been documented. And I think it's really critical for anybody that's listening to today's podcast to really take that to heart that if, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go through and do something that involves judgment and accounting always involves judgment. Um, you know, I, I remember as a kid, somebody telling me that there's not, one FASB that's ever been written that doesn't involve some form of judgment. And so, um, you know, when you go through and you document your decisions, whatever they might be, whether it's an estimate or an application of gap or whatever, make sure that you document those decisions and make sure you put them in a file someplace because somebody could always say to you that, you know, uh, you, you, you misapplied generally accepted accounting principles and that happens all the time. But 
you know, if you have some type of logic that was contemporaneous to those particular transactions or those decision dates, I think it shows that the fact that there was, you know, intent to do the right thing. So that's my shout out today to document, 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 not only from a compliance perspective, but also from an accounting perspective. Well, we'll certainly accept that. Matt Kelly, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? Yeah, I have um, what I suppose is a shout out in a roundabout way to Chief Justice John Roberts um, for the two cases that he led the court to decide just yesterday uh, from when we are recording. Both seven to two decisions that, uh, the yes, the New York District Attorney can seek the president's tax returns, um, but the Congress, when issuing a subpoena, must only be able to issue a subpoena for the executive branch according to a legitimate legislative purpose. And I think there was a four-part test to how a judge might assess a subpoena's uh, legitimate legislative purpose. And I know a lot of people were quick to say that John Roberts upheld the rule of law, which he did, and that uh, case specifically uh, against uh, President Trump and the district attorney in New York, Cyrus Vance. They very clearly said the president is not above the law. He is not immune from criminal investigation. So we all might think this is a big victory for the rule of law. Really consider what the chief justice did here. He did this judicial bank shot off the Constitution to give Donald Trump a more time to argue that his tax returns should not be disclosed. They we're not going to see them before the November election. B, uh, he also uh, gave Donald Trump yet another reason to whine about being picked on to his base, which is a very valuable political thing for the president. He loves to whine about how life is not fair. Now he can whine about the Supreme Court to his base and keep his little 38 or 37 percent of diehards. Um, so he did two big favors to the president politically while upholding the law constitutionally and along the way inserted the judicial branch and giving them a right of review over whether or not Congress can issue a subpoena. And I get it that the Supreme Court said this, so it's the law of the land, but I am not entirely clear on you know, when do judges get to decide what Congress can or cannot do? I thought this was a co-equal branch with the judiciary, not somehow subordinate to the judiciary. And um, just leaves me kind of puzzled about, is that really something that we would have wanted? Um, because now it's going to be in practice until the Supreme Court, I guess, reverses itself, maybe sometime in the distant future. So, in a roundabout way, what Chief Justice Roberts did here was really skillful legally and politically and constitutionally. And like, talk about a masterstroke of um, action in Washington, D.C. It's nice to see somebody down there has a brain in their head, and I guess it's the Chief Justice. So I don't know that I agree with everything he did, but uh, I'm giving him a shout out for how he did it because it was pretty skillful. Mike Volkoff, do you have a shout and or rant for us? Well, I'm going to jump on the Matt Kelly bandwagon with a, uh, a couple points. One is uh, I would encourage anyone who's interested in the cases to listen to the argument because what the sort of liberal block or whatever you may want to call them the, the, uh, was concerned about as well was they started asking questions about if Congress had this broad power, they're worried that if a Democratic president comes in and the con Congress is all of a sudden controlled by the Republicans, 
could they be looking at broad subpoenas for personal papers or whatever of uh, the president during the time that he's in there? And I thought the fact that they join with Roberts, uh, there's some people who criticize them for not being more aggressive, but Roberts definitely threaded a needle. Uh, and I think um, if you, the other interesting fact from this term was that that Roberts only dissented in two decisions, which is a record for a chief judge, uh, justice. Uh, and the reason I think that reflects is his ability to sort of, um, you know, bring people together. Uh, remember, he uh, he was the key vote or the key writer in overturning the DACA rule, uh, and in uh, as several decisions here, he was the key sort of influencer and ended up writing the opinion. Uh, So he's more than skilled. I also believe that deep down, he does not have much respect for the president and the administration because he's certainly ready to uh, spank them when necessary. So, you know, I think he's a politically savvy guy. and, And keep in mind, that you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander, uh, and I think that there's worry about if Biden were to win, uh, and what could happen if the Republicans eventually got control of Congress. So, Jonathan Armstrong, you've set a high bar for yourself. Do you have a rant and/or shout out for us? <laughs> I'm going to have a shout out. I'm going to I'm going to put my rant into context uh, to say that why I care about this stuff is because, of course, it, inc- it diminishes resource from the healthcare system. It stops people getting treatment, or it makes people get the wrong treatment. So we shouldn't look at these bribes in isolation. They have a meaningful effect on people's lives. So having calmed down on that, I, my, mine's a sort of shout out and a plea for help. Um, I am particularly shouting out to those people who are in transition or uh, not in jobs at the moment. I've made a little bit of an effort to try and look through those people in my network and reach out to them and ask them if they're okay. Because it's not fun at the moment, I imagine, to be at home without a job in lockdown. And so to all of our loyal listeners, if you can find it in your heart to look through your virtual Rolodex and pick a couple of people that you know who are out of work, reach out to them via email. They might just welcome a chat. I am going to give a shout out to Matt Keogh. Matt Keogh is the county judge in Montgomery County, which is the county north of Houston. And he gets a huge shout out because after the mayor of Houston canceled the Republican State Convention, which was scheduled to uh, happen next week in Houston. The Republicans were determined to have a live convention, having 8,000 people packed into the George R. Brown Convention Center. Uh, County Judge Keogh offered to hold the convention in Montgomery County. And I think that's about as neighborly as you can get. Nothing like um, 8,000 magma hat covid uh, magma hat wearers passing COVIDity around as COVIDiots. So uh, glad uh, our brothers and sisters up in Montgomery County uh, are safe and are going to continue to be safe because they're going to have 8,000 screaming Republicans up there. So big shout out to County Judge Matt Keogh. 
Gentlemen, this has been a fabulous episode. Uh, got a lot uh, packed into it, and I can't see, can't wait to see what we come up with next. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang for this episode was Jonathan Marks, Jonathan Armstrong, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly. If you'd like some topics explored on Everything Compliance, please send us a message via the SpeakPipe button on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Everything Compliance, where the gang will get back and look at topical issues relating to compliance and ethics. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.